Sue. I'm a compulsive overeater and the moderator for this session. Hi. Help us preserve the cherished tradition of anonymity by refraining from taking pictures in this or any other meeting room. The format for this session is a reading, two speakers, and ask it basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from For Today, page 204. Repetition is the only form of permanence that nature can achieve. George Santayana. When I tire of the sameness of the program, I wonder why there isn't some more advanced way of doing it. Now that I'm abstinent, thin, sorry, and saying, why do I have to keep going to the same meetings, hearing and saying the same things? Different people have different answers to such questions. Some change meetings. Others turn to more challenging forms of service. What I know is this. I have a cunning, baffling, and powerful disease that can and does throw every trick in the book at me. Yes, I need to be at meetings. Yes, I need to hear newcomers. And yes, I need to keep on working the program over and over again. I have read the big book and the 12 and 12 a hundred times. And each time, the same words give me a different meaning, a new insight. For today, thank God I'm here. Pray God to keep me here. Our first speaker is Pamela from Redlands, who will speak for 20 minutes. Oh, no microphone, right? Oh, there is a, okay. Right. I'm Pamela. I'm a food addict. Hi, Pamela. Hi, everybody. How are you? Um, I'm grateful to the abstinence since April, I'm sorry, August 21st, 1998. And um, in that time, I've always wondered why it is that they make, um, you know, abstinence toughest in the beginning. Like why, because it seems like it should be hardest. Withdrawal should come well into abstinence, not at the beginning. You know what I mean? <laughs> once, you, once you get into program, then withdrawal should hit you maybe five years down the road when you have a foundation. But it actually seems toughest when you first come in, you have to go through withdrawal. That, for me, that was the hardest part. Um, it's like the trick of the program for me in the beginning was thinking how I was going to make it from meal to meal without compulsively overeating. It was the toughest part of this last five years. Um, just being able to put one meal in front of the next and not compulsively overeat. My life depended on it. I had a little newborn baby in my arms. And I was thinking back to just two months before when she was born, and I was driving through, like, the Ace drive-through um, restaurant, and she was in the front seat of the car, and I had just been through another um, gas station where I had left her in the car in the desert heat with the one set of car keys and the air conditioner on, with her in the car with where it's nice and cool so she could stay there nice and cool while I went in and binged at the gas station, um, left her alone. 
and driving through these establishments not knowing what would be the last restaurant. And so I had these visions in my head that this is the type of mom I was going to be for the first time. And so these are the things that were keeping me going from one abstinent meal to the next, these visions of horror of how that my, that my new motherhood was just going to be filled with food. And so the driving motive for me to hang in there through the tough times of, of simply abstaining was, I am not going to be a mother like that. <laughs> and that is the only thing that kept me going like that. Uh, so once it took about maybe a good 90 days for the physical withdrawal to leave my body, where the sugar, the flour, the eating between meals, the things that I felt subsided because I simply put one meal in front of the next in a measured amount through my body and there was some balance that came in. The craving subsided. And uh, in that time, I think it was day seven, I had picked up Big Book and called, in, the AA Big Book, and called in desperation to a sponsor and said, here I am, you know, what do I do? I, I, I can't live my life, you know, being this way, you know, because I had been in OA since 1990 and had a history of relapsing maybe about once a year and um, known that I had gone to the steps before and worked the steps and knew that there must be something wrong if I was deciding to work away by binging once a year. And I knew the steps worked, and so I had to keep doing them until they worked. So I, I had, had picked up a ferocious inventory, and all I did was, was write from that day seven till seven months later. And I decided that the only thing between me and the food was that pen and paper. And I think by the time I got done with that inventory, um, the only thing driving that inventory was the food behind me. And, and that's how it felt, like this massive disease was pushing this inventory right through, and I, was, and I got out stuff that I had never gotten out in, since I had come to program. And it was just a great, well, it wasn't great at the time. It was a great catharsis. And I, and I was forced to, to write things out that I, that I had never really gotten out before. And it was great. Um, and I felt like, really, it was true. The only thing between me and the, and the food was this pen and paper. So there it was. I had, you know, way measuring my food, then having the, the pen to the paper, um, calling that sponsor, you know, not eating no matter what, all the lingo things, you know, going to the meetings, um, uh, giving away that fifth step, which was by then May of 99, was the most wonderful relief I'd had in nine years of coming to OA. And I finally felt like uh, there was a puzzle piece that was put in my heart that I'd never had before. I can't explain it. It was like I didn't know that there was anything missing until it was put in. I don't know how to explain it. And it was right here. It was put in my heart. And, um, and I knew I was going to make it. And I don't know what that means. I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying I knew I was never going to eat again. I just knew that, that I was going to make it. And it wasn't going to be the same again. And that I, that I, that I had addressed something. <laughs> Whatever it was. 
and, and maybe it was a faulty foundation, I don't know. Since then, and I was talking with my sister before, uh, before this meeting about it, uh, I can't say that I've ever um, questioned um, the fact that I uh, wouldn't, you know, do what I do to take care of my abstinence. Um, before, there was always this fight, maybe there'll be a situation. I'm the type that I've learned so much about my disease. They say that knowledge is, you know, not helpful, but I've got to say that knowledge is very helpful because I've learned so much about my disease in this time that I am not a crisis um, I'm not a crisis food person. Let me just explain. Like, if there's a, a illness, death, um, change in circumstance, move, um, job change, uh, birth, you know, I know, I, I do think of the food first. I think of, okay, how am I going to take care of my food? You know, I think of that. I plan. I get, I'm very P's and Q's about taking care of my program. Where's my meeting going to go? How am I going to call my sponsor? Where am I going to, how am I going to do my writing? And then I get it all in place, and everything goes fine. And then it's like three weeks after the change or three weeks after the, the death or, you know, maybe it's even preceding it or it's around it, but it's not during it. Like most people would be watching for it. Like after the birth of the baby, it wasn't during the normal afterbirth of the baby when people would have problems. It was like, way after, and I'd be in the doctor going, is this normal? He'd go, not seven months later, you know. <laughs> He'd say, maybe postpartum would be right after, but not right, you know, anyway. Um, so uh, so I've, I've learned that I'm not a July 4th eater. I'm a, you know, uh, maybe July 19th kind of eater. And so I'm not, a, I'm not a Thanksgiving problem. You know, I would be November 1st. I would be... I, so since I know that about myself, I know that my disease is unpredictable. I um, don't have to worry about overeating at necessarily at the restaurant in in front of people. Um, I I might be more prone to wanting to do it alone in front of my husband. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm like so I I have a I know where I live and so and my sponsor knows where I live more than I do because I've unfortunately told her over 10 years now that um, more tricks than I've than I should have told her so she she can tell she she knows what's going on with me and so um, these tough times are like the ordinary times and she knows I'm like a an ordinary junkie what's going on now are things boring for you and she'll know if things are boring that I'll be in trouble. And it's not that it's just that she tries to get me to she tries to get me to to get life on life terms, like she tries to get me okay with boring. That that's a really good thing. She starts celebrating when I'm bored, you know. She tries to get me to see that boring is serenity and this kind of thing and and uh and that, that that's where it's at. So um I think of I think of the grace and how grateful I feel that, for one thing, um, when things do happen, I feel like it's a strange blessing of my childhood growing up that 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 I learned um, to do very well during crisis. Because I think, in some strange way, um, that's kind of worked out to be a, a blessing that I can handle crisis really well. 
now, like for the remainder of, the li- of my life, I'd like to learn how to handle serenity, you know, as well as I can handle crisis. And it sounds funny. I can keep very isolated. It's not very popular to say that you're in a crisis or a tough time for you is when things are going well. It sounds self-indulgent. It sounds um, self-pitying. It also sounds like you're not being grateful. Someone might even accuse you of being, um, you know, that you need to do a gratitude list or that you're um, that kind of thing. But if that's the truth about how your disease works, then getting honest with someone is very helpful. So I know that about myself, and that's what I have to do to realize is that those, that's where my disease lives, and the getting honest part, whether it's on paper, in an inventory, step 10, or with my sponsor, helps me uh, be able to address it and then not have the disease be festering in there and, um, uh, you know, taking over so that I'm not, you know, uh, lying to myself. Um, things, are, things are really uh, very quite ordinary right now. And the food's not calling me. It's, it's not that kind of thing. I've been very blessed these last five years because of the surrender and the freedom. Um, it's more of an anxiety type of situation where um, uh, it reminds me of I didn't understand when my uh, sponsor who lives in Boston couldn't, couldn't leave the town. Like she was like 13 years abstinent a few, you know, so a number, number of years ago, and she couldn't take the train into her city, and there was this big thing where her sponsor was going to have her, you know, ride the train into the city, or I don't know what it was, and so her big thing was getting up the courage to do that, and it was so ordinary to me, because I had flown planes everywhere, you know, and since 9-11, I've never been able to fly, and I think I'll never fly again, and, and I'm like, here I am, five years abstinent, and this was a lot of years ago, and I'm, I can't even drive from Redlands to the conference like I'm just gripping the wheel, you know, like, oh, my God, I'm going to get an accident. And, and I mean, I used to just fly and go everywhere. And I'm thinking that's the kind of thing, like an ordinary driving from here to there. That's the kind of ordinary kind of thing that I'm talking about where, you know, reducing the fear level, it's like nobody would ever say, oh, that's a tough time. You're having a tough time because you couldn't drive from here. <laughs> but anyone who's a compulsive eater might think, you know, Oh, my God, I sort of relate to that. Like, whoa, you think like that, too? Um, these are the kinds of ordinary things. And I wonder if it's because, sometimes I've wondered if it's because I have two small children that I've had to break life down into really small steps and really get humble as to how life really is much more um, complex for me than I ever thought. I always acted like I was so much braver than really it was, and the food has humbled me so much that I had to get so uh, reduced to my right size, and when I really got honest, I was such a fraud before about what I could handle and what my limitations were, and this program has forced me to get really honest about what I can't handle and what I really have fears about, Um, and I get really brave that, wow, I can, you know, drive from there with that, I get brave that I did it in spite of my fear. Um, I get br- feel brave that I can do anything in spite of my fear, um, uh, but I um, also um, just so so. What I'm saying is, is when I can reduce those expectations and then see that 
um, I can go through a day and and feel that um, what I did is being a, being a mom, for example, at home. If I'm able to um, even help my children through their fears or have an obstacle that we're working through or um, like say for example they want to go outside and I'm having the intense fear of bees that didn't go away in the last inventory I push out there with my EpiPen in my pocket you know if you, for the allergy people <laughs> and and I'm out there anyway you know even though I'm shaking and it's like you know I'm doing it um, this is that thing where my sponsor said you know we don't have food to anesthetize ourselves but we but we're doing, we're living life. Um, and it's ordinary, but to me that's tough, you know. This is the stuff that makes me want to cry when nobody's looking. And it's the stuff that nobody knows about because you can turn on the TV and there are tough things in the world and there are tough things that people go through and there are tougher issues in the world than, than what I just talked about. But I think, I don't know, I've talked to enough compulsive overeaters and I've talked to enough people to know that the private things that, that haunt us or bother us, thank you, are, are really can be the clinchers, not only because we feel shame about them, but because we keep them to ourselves. And um, they, they may not be very big, but they become monsters. And this disease thrives on secrecy. And how many times has my husband laughed when I've shared with him something that either he's felt or I've felt, and, and it just diminishes on the spot when it's just shared. Um, so, you know, tough, tough times can be for me. Um, you know, I feel, I feel blessed that it's not about hanging on to my abstinence through these things. It's about how do, I, how do I live abstinently, comfortably enough so that I don't return to the food? Because <laughs> if my primary purpose is, is to abstain, in which it truly is, and, and, and I do want continued, continuous and growing serenity abstinently. I want a growing spirit and a more increased physical body abstinent where I feel more at peace within my body and my spirit as I go along in my years. You know, I want to be able to live life on life's terms and I want to be able to have the uh, ability to be able to do the things I need to do and to not do the things that I can't <laughs> or don't have to do. Um, it was a huge victory for me to learn how to sleep in abstinence. I don't know what that was. For years, I have just now learned how to sleep. I'm so grateful for that. It makes me cry. It was probably the toughest thing I had to deal with, but I finally can do it now. And um, the, these, to me, those are tough. That's tough when you can't sleep. Um, um, not being able to exercise for fear of uh, sweating. I don't know what that's about. It's something to do with anorexia. Um, 
and then breaking a sweat. That That's tough, but when you do it, then, you know, you feel like that's tough, but you actually make it through. I mean, these are these are different. These are internal struggles rather than what happens to you circumstantially on the outside. I guess I've become more interested. Do I have one minute? I have become more interested in the internal tough things than what happens to me on the outside because OA has given me a way to um, navigate my way through the things that happen on the outside, like the death of my stepfather. People that the, the outside things that happen, I feel like I can get through because of this fellowship and this thing. It's the internal things that come up that those are the things that I don't quite know how to navigate because they affect the way that I live and I'm not sure how to do them. And that's the stuff that makes me feel the shakiest and that's the stuff I need the most help with and that's why I wanted to address them today, even though I'm not quite sure if I did it exactly the way that I wanted to. <laughs> Thanks for letting me share. There should be an ask it basket that should be going around the room. Um, and our second spe speaker is Gretchen from Long Beach, who will speak for 20 minutes. Hi, my name is Gretchen, compulsive overeater. And um, just to get the numbers out of the way, um, I came into OA in the late 70s. I got abstinent in 1981, this current abstinent and abstinence, and my top weight was 170, and last time I got on the scale, I was 137. Um, I've maintained this abstinence, which for me is three meals a day with nothing in between, and no sugar the whole time, and most of the time, no flour. Um, I do have a snack sometimes if I have a long period between lunch and dinner, um, which is either cheese or a piece of fruit. So um, that's my numbers. Um, but when I got the topic, this topic, it just did not thrill me at all. I thought, oh, my God, what? You know, it just didn't do anything for me. So um, I really didn't worry about it. And then when I got uh, this a couple hours ago, I took out the book because I thought, i got to get some kind of inspiration here because I just felt nothing. Because if you live with my head, every day is a tough day, you know. So, um, so I got the book out, and it was just what you started talking about is, there's obvious hard times and then the non-obvious. And for me, the non-obvious are the killers. Um, when my dad was dying of cancer, I, I expected to be a basket case. I expected to be hungry. I expected to be up and down. So when I felt that, it, it was, okay, your dad's dying. You, you know, of course. So... I knew that I needed to be seriously taking care of myself, which I did. But it's the, it's the non-obvious for me, the times that I'm so jealous I can't stand it, um, the times that I'm throwing a tantrum and convince myself I'm a 46-year-old woman, I'm not throwing a tantrum, but I refuse to speak with somebody. Those are hard times for me. Um, uh, you know, and I guess the, the, the hope is is that, Today I recognize that I'm my biggest problem and that if I can do my work and get over myself a lot of times, then I'm going to be pretty comfortable. Um, 
I came in as a victim. I thought everybody had done it to me. I didn't think I had much part in anything. I was pretty young, so I my mantra was, well, I'm only 19. How could I have hurt anybody? I mean, that was my, you know, what I believed. And um, then, of course, when I started doing my inventory and um, doing my own work, then I saw how my character defects were, like, rampant. And um, I seem to have this thing lately with jealousy and envy and rage. I don't know what happened, but I feel like, and I heard this saying when I first came in here, and this is, for me, these are the tough times to abstain through, is rage. Um, I heard we're as fat as we are angry. And um, for some reason I wrote that in my big book, and I, I really believed it. I don't think I recognized that I was angry, but it hit. I, I knew that it was a truth, and that someday I was going to have to deal with my rage. And um, I feel like I don't know why in the last few months, oh, I know, I'm in a new relationship. Yeah, <laughs> that's what's happened. Anyway, just rage, like unbelievable, and mouth. And I mean, I didn't say a word. I grew up where... You know, I learned how to read my dad, and then whatever kind of behavior I had to do to not get hit or to be comfortable, I did it. And so I was always like, like, I always felt like I was in the minefield. And I didn't know that until I got here, because I thought I had a great family, and I was fortunate, and you, sorry people, you know, I'm sorry for the kind of life you had, but I had a fabulous family, and blah, blah, blah. I talked to my mom at least once a day. I had, uh, I have four sisters and a brother, so I had great family and a hundred I'm from Italians there's like a hundred of us so I really didn't have to do friendships I just did cousins and you know they're not going to leave you you know your cousins will stay no matter what they got to show up at the holidays which they all do they still do but I don't that's the difference um but anyway so oh I was talking about this rage so anyway I just feel like all of a sudden I'm getting in touch with this rage and this is after you know 21 years of abstinence but it feels like a rage that is so deep in me and that I was so unwill you know what I was afraid of it I'm afraid of anger because I, I always knew I had like I don't know if anger and hate is the same thing but I always knew I had a deep hate in my heart and um, I mean my dad was pretty abusive and I don't know if that's why but I, I felt at some point my heart just stopped loving I mean I was just shut down and I wasn't going to let anybody get in much too close to me and um, I knew that but I didn't know how to make, do it any different so now I'm doing a lot of work and, and that's writing and and um, just a lot a lot of work around um, rage right now but the neat thing is is that um, I went last Saturday, I went to a, a function with a, um, a program, a woman in program, and I always like to drive by myself because I don't want to get stuck talking to anybody for more than an hour that I don't want to get that I don't want to talk to, and that if I need to leave, all of a sudden I can get up and leave. Well, this woman asked me if she could come with me, and I'm thinking, oh sure, okay. So anyway. Um, so, you know, I was a little nervous about it and all that, and I thought, oh, Gretchen, you know. So I made a time that we were going to leave, and I made a time that we had to leave by there so that I felt safe. So we're in the car driving, and this is what you were talking about, the fear, uh, just the absolute terror of being around people. I mean, this is the tough times for me, and this is all self. You know, I don't blame myself because I have it, but I, I recognize it and I admit it. Uh, you know, I just believe that this is who I am. I have... 
fears that I believe are irrational until I come in here and I hear other people talking. I mean, I have this job that I'm supposed to travel all over the country. I don't fly. So when I had to admit, I mean, I, my company was bought by another company, and they, my other company always, I've taken the train all over the country because, number one, it was a railroad, and number two, they didn't care. But this is like an international company, and I have to tell these people, and, you know, once something like that, well, you know, Gretchen doesn't fly. I mean, that's all I could picture them all saying. I had to admit I can't go to Charleston because I don't fly. And talk about humbling. I'm still embarrassed about it. But you know what? I, I just, that's who I am, and I had to get honest about it. And, but anyway, so I'm in the car with this woman, and she says to me, I know you didn't want me to come today. <laughs> and I go, you're right. I'm sure it's just, anyway, because I had opened up a little bit about how uncomfortable I am around people, and I don't really get that close. I, I always kind of keep my distance. And um, so anyway, she was willing to, to give that back to me and to talk me through it. And this was the neatest thing, is that I felt like I showed my underbelly to her. And anybody else, I don't think anybody else in my mind would understand that, that I can't, I always have to have a way out. Um, I just always set up my situation so I have a way out. And to me it sounds like, you know, what's wrong with you, you poor thing. But I shared it with a person in OA and um, I got love, I got understanding, and I got no judgment. Now, I don't know what was going on in her head, but that's none of the stuff she showed me. And um, so I feel like here in the program I can show my underbelly and it doesn't get kicked in, I don't get kicked in the gut with it. And, I mean, sure, I've been hurt a few times with people here, but I've had ways, I mean, I've had ways to deal with it. And that's the thing, I have ways to deal with my insanity. And I feel like my disease is is the tough times, um, and sometimes it's harder than others, and other times it's no big deal. But I, the, the neat thing is, is that I had a woman that came with me that um, is not in the program, and um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, okay, so we were talking a little bit about, you know, the program, because she doesn't know the steps or any of that stuff, and I was telling her how I have never seen such incredible growth and life-changing experiences here in the program. I've never seen people totally transformed within a year, within two years, and continually grow and evolve as people as I have in 12-step programs. And it's not something that we get, like, um, you could go to therapy for a week, every week, once a week for years, and I have never seen the, the changes in people's life as the 12 steps made, nor, nor I mean, even in my own life. Um, I was terrified when I got here. I couldn't stop eating. Um, I was so tied into my family that I had I didn't have a friend outside of my family, and I couldn't function outside of my family. I mean, if my dad told me the sky was yellow with pink polka dots, I looked up at the sky, and that's exactly what I thought and, and saw. And um, so when I came in here and, and that process of getting abstinent and growing and having to pull away from my family was was extremely tough for me. And what happened for me is when I got abstinent, I found out that I was gay. So be careful. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> Always warn people. Your life is going to change. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway, so that's what I got. And, um, and my family cut me off, and, you know, and I kind of told you a little bit of how close I was, cut me off for about eight, seven, eight years. 
And um, so that was a tough time, and I abstained through it. I abstained through it. But what happened was there were people in the program that invited me over at the holidays because I was not invited over to my family's. Um, there were people I had no problem in OA. I had no problem. Um, and, and there was a – oh, and I stopped smoking, abstained through that. Um, got through school, I mean, but probably the toughest was watching my dad die and taking care of him um, and also uh, when I got cut off from my family because I was so tied in, I was forced to grow up. And, um, I mean, I'm still, I'm still, you know, up and down and all around. And um, when I first got here, I couldn't, I had no concept of God and the way I started, which now to me, I think if I would have been a little bit more open spiritually, I would have got relief sooner, but I was pretty shut down spiritually and, and I really thought it was a disease that I could, it was illogical. I could get the answers. It was a logical answer. And now I'm learning there's nothing logical about this. There's, it's a spiritual solution which I've heard over and over again today, and that's what's, um, that, that's what's pushed my recovery, is the spiritual solution. Anyway, um, but I couldn't even, I had no concept of God, and my, what carried me or started me was my sponsor saying, um, well, do you believe that I believe? And I knew absolutely that she believed, and I thought working in her life, and I said, oh, absolutely. She said, then that's all you have to do for today. And that's what I did, and it worked for me, and today I have an incredible relationship with God. Um, I, you know, a lot of times when I have a struggle with a, with a problem, I'll, I will literally just ask God to guide it, guide me and help me, and I know I will have an answer. I have no doubt in my mind. When I've done all my writing, I've prayed, I've spoken to people, and I still don't have an answer, I still have a gut ache, I, I think, okay, now this is when i got to ask God, and I get an answer. And that's incredible to me, and I know that's how the program works. I mean, you know, and sometimes I don't even have to do all that stuff, and I and I have an answer. But a lot of times I'll do all that that activity, and and um, just because I know it's worked for me in the past. But is my time almost up? No. Okay. Anyway, I think that's probably. Sometimes I can talk a lot, and sometimes I can't. But I'm just so incredibly grateful. I'm the only one in my family that's ever come to the program. No, actually, my cousin is at the AA convention across town. Um, I think there's like three of us out of a hundred that that have been to 12-step programs, and I've had um, cousins over 300 pounds that have had trachotomies because they couldn't breathe and died and died. Um, so, um, you know, I feel grateful that I was sick enough to be pushed pushed to come here. I mean, I feel like the lucky one, and mine also feels like I've had a God's hand or somebody on my back pushing me every step of the way. Like it's pretty effortless. Um, after I surrendered to the food, and which I believe is the main deal. It, you know, to me, if you're still struggling, you really need to look at, have I really, really surrendered that I'm powerless over food? I spent a lot of years in the program, four plus, really thinking about this piece of cake and arguing that you cannot tell me this piece of cake has more power than me. It is, that is not even logical, and I would be locked up if I said that to anybody. But you know what? Today that cake has tons more power than me and it can have it all food has ton more power tons more power than me and i don't really care i stepped out of that debate and the only reason i stepped out of it because i ended up in the gutter 
you know, in doubled over in pain. I had lost all my weight. Um, in my first year of abstinence, I got down to 125 pounds because it was gray sheet or blue, whatever was going on then. And if you ate it, you were going to lose weight. And that's what I say now. If all you want to do is come here and lose weight and get the hell out, just go to a meeting every day and you, you'll lose weight. You'll lose weight. Go to a meeting every day and then leave. And hopefully we see you back. But, um, but anyway, so I lost all my weight, and then I wanted to blow my brains out. And I heard that, and I was reading in the big book, it talks about the insanity of the disease, and that's when I really got, four years later, still trying to fight the food, that I had to do more than just a food plan. And I was pretty good at staying on a food plan. I would have like a year of abstinence, and then break, or three months, and then break. So, I mean, my weight stayed pretty low. But I wanted to die. I felt so bad inside. And that's when I became willing uh, to, to work the steps. And I encourage, if you don't have a sponsor, just, I mean, just get anybody, really, and start calling them because there is no way you know how to do this program. With you, you don't know it. So how do you expect to be working the steps if you don't even know what they are? And it's not, you know, I read those steps, but I never got there were principles behind them. So I never got, like, I read that thing and it was so vague to me. Those steps were so vague. Because they didn't really tell you point A to point B, this is how you get there, do this. They're so vague because of spiritual principles that are behind them. And that's why I needed a sponsor to guide me. I still I use a sponsor. A lot of times I still call my food in or email my food in every day um, just because then I don't have to worry about it and I'm much uh, more honest when I'm emailing my food in. And a lot of times if I have a bad situation, I wait days before I call anybody. And, and just like until I'm excruciatingly pained, uh, then sometimes I'll pick up the phone, and other times I don't have a problem picking up the phone. So I don't know. I just hope everybody keeps coming back. It's like I feel privileged, and I feel we're all privileged to be here. And, if you know, just keep coming back because I don't know anybody that's come a long time and has stayed that doesn't feel the same way. And um, it's a real gift uh, to live this way and to find a way to live that brings so much peace and most of the time joy. So thank you. Okay, we will now have questions from the Ask It Basket. This question says, what did you do to learn how to sleep when abstinent? <laughs> What's my time on this one? <laughs> Took me the whole five years. Um, well, I'm Pamela. I'm a food addict. Um, I um, discovered, um, well, first of all, uh, when I first got abstinent, I couldn't sleep because the clarity of abstinence is excruciating. Uh, I got down to, you know, three or four hours of sleep. I was such a, just a light bulb. Um, and I loved the clarity. I just became a, I was a good writer before, but I became a brilliant writer, like, overnight. And it was a good thing I was working on an inventory, but I was also writing all kinds of other stuff, and I just became super creative. And um, so, um, misery loves company. <laughs> I was miserable, but I was working on all kinds of great projects, too, and I, and I was sleepless with them. And, um, but what's the question? How did you learn how to sleep in abstinence? Okay, see, I loved sleeplessness, 
um, and that was the problem. Um, and then I was in denial about the fact that um, it was part of another disorder. But thank God for abstinence uh, because I didn't eat. Here's what happened is um, I discovered that um, it was part of untreated depression and because sleeplessness is a symptom for depression. And because I wasn't eating, I didn't mask it. And so I got to be treated for the depression. And then when it was discovered that that was the wrong treatment for the depression, it turns out it was a certain type of depression, which is called bipolar disorder. And then I was down to like one hour of sleep, and it was like then like no sleep, and it got very dangerous. And I was, then I was um, diagnosed insomnia and bipolar. And so not until I took this, you know, the, the bipolar medication, um, which then I found out from the, the doctor that people who are uh, like me use, can use food in a period of like nine months to a year to medicate their, themselves. And it made, made my relapse history in a way all make sense to me. Um, and the pieces just kind of fell into place, and I felt grateful that um, that I had abstained long enough to learn the truth, to get treatment, to not only be able to sleep, but to. Um, but before that, before I came out of denial about that particular condition, I had spent every waking hour trying to figure out how to get to sleep, including meditating instead of sleeping. I was trying to do everything but sleep, almost like an anorexic would try everything but food. And so I had just kind of switched addictions, basically. And so it was a very serious problem in my life, but because I abstained, I was able to resolve it, you know, eventually. And I, my sister can attest, last night I slept like a baby. I didn't even move. <laughs> this question says, what do you do when you want to eat things not on your food plan and you just feel like you have to have them? Hi, my name is Gretchen, compulsive reader. And um, let me think. You know what? I just have not had that obsession with sugar or anything like that since I surrendered, the surrender took place. So I don't know. Sometimes now, though, I'll have, uh, I had an issue with dried fruit that really I should not have been eating, and that kept popping up in my um, meal. Um, And what happened was the last time I just couldn't do it anymore because I felt so bad after I ate it, even though it was at my meal, it's fruit, blah, blah, blah. Um, I had incredible rage that um, that came up when I didn't have it. So I don't know. Sometimes you do have to eat it at your meal, whatever it is. I, you know what? I, sometimes I do have to eat it and feel bad enough about eating it before I'm willing to give it up. So, And I've had to give up a lot of different things in a food plan because of it, things that were abstinent. Other people could probably eat and not have a problem with it. So. I don't know, but you need to be honest, whatever it is. I was always honest with somebody about what I was doing, and um, I just stayed honest. And um, it seemed like at some point it was it was removed from me. The desire to have it was removed. Hmm. 
This question says, when you're going through tough times, is it okay to share the actual problem in meetings, or should you share with sponsor only? Well, I just promised my sister I wouldn't talk about bipolar disorder, so does that answer your question? <laughs> She's not my sponsor either. <laughs> and I promised my sponsor I would keep it to the food and not get into the mental illness because it alienates some people. But, but she also agrees that was our toughest thing to go through with me and her because she wasn't going to sponsor anyone on a medication and I convinced her otherwise that I was worth it. You know, there's a lot of people in our program that won't sponsor people on m medication of any kind and, and boy, she turned around with me because she loved me a lot and didn't want to lose me as a sponsor. But she wouldn't sponsor women who were pregnant either because she didn't want to deal with all the added food that she had to listen to on the plan. But I turned her around with that one, too, twice, because I had two babies. So um, does that answer the question, you think? No, I share everything in meetings, and it's bad. I walk out with a shame attack still. I mean, I have one just now coming off the podium. I mean, you know, there are some things I do keep private. Someone's shaking their head back there. But I, I do, obviously, obviously, there's a fifth step that is reserved for my sponsor. Obviously. There's, there's always so much more I could share in here. So I'm lucky with what I get out with in here. It's so surface anyway with what you can share, you know. And I, and I do, res I think it's good to respect the newcomer within reason if you're not taking up too much time like I am right now. This says, what tips do you have when you're feeling that you are experiencing an injustice and em emptiness at the same time? Injustice and I understand the injustice, but I don't understand the emptiness. But anyway, I'll speak to the injustice, which to me means resentment, oh. which means uh, inventory. Fourth step, tenth step. Um, I've never gotten relief from anything when I'm talking about you. I've only gotten relief from the problem when I'm talking about me and admitting um, my part in it. And for me, there's been one instance in this last abstinence, which is 21 years, that I have honestly not been able to find something that I did to either provoke it, start it, or make it worse. Um, so, there you go. What are the tools you use to keep yourself honest about the secrets you're keeping even from yourself. Oh, meditation. Yeah, I have to. I have to sit still because that. That's just uh, my head is so busy. Obviously. <laughs> My head lies at a rate faster than the normal person. <laughs> so stillness is utmost. So sitting, sitting still is just completely that. And, and I have to hear the lie out loud. So I would say the, like, I don't even know. I mean, okay, meditation, stillness, I can hear it. But I think it's the communication with another person that is, like, far more than anything else to keep myself honest. Um, and I, the reason I say the two in tandem is that 
Well, it's like 10 and 11 together. The, it's like what you're saying is like the daily inventory. I have to keep myself honest and about the secrets. Okay, so it's like 10 and 11. It's like I have to do the the um, the sitting still and then the, the prayer and meditation and then the keeping keeping house and the prayer and the meditation. It's like the finding it out and telling someone. But I don't if I don't open up my spirit and I don't tell someone, I can't make the connection. Does that make any sense? It's like I won't be able to know what's going on with myself if I don't tell another person. This question says, share how you do the program when you are really stressed or overwhelmed. Um, what, What happens for me is the first thing I get real, try to get real clear on and clean on is my food. If there's any sloppiness or big meals um, I make sure I get real clean if I need to start calling it in again I do and then usually from there um, what was the question again when you're overwhelmed and stressed oh yeah 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 that's what I start with and then once that somebody I just heard somebody say at a meeting I think it was Monday if you want to find out what's eating you stop eating and I thought oh how simple Mm -hmm. so usually if my food's real clean then I'll find out what the deal is and what do I have to do to get over it. So, thank you. Um, Are there any rituals with food, steps, program, etc., that you do on a daily basis that help you keep abstinent? Well, my favorite ritual, sorry, finding and measuring my food. They told me that after I had my child that, that everything would change. They were wrong. There was one thing that was the same, my meals. <laughs> and I was very grateful. It was very comforting to see that my meals were the same the day before my child was born and then the day after my child was born. And they're still that way. And it, it was, it's, well, I'm talking about the second child. First one, I, you know, lost <laughs> my ass. But the second one is just, I can't even tell you. The, the ritual of weighing and measuring my food that I've been doing since I lost my weight in 1991, which was 40 pounds for me, was is first and foremost something I hope I do to the day I die. I'm not like one of these people that hopes one day that I'll get to stop weighing and measuring because for me it's a boundary around my food that I hope I always have. And that ritual for me is just the amount of food I have keeps my food surrendered and for me serves as just a guiding point that I don't have to think about my food on a daily basis. It's there on the paper. Whatever I eat, if it's not on the plan, it's not an option. I don't have to think about food. My head is so full of so many other thoughts. There would be, there is like no room anymore for anything else. It's like, thank God it's emptied out now because like all this other stuff comes rushing in. And um, thanks. (laughs) Did you want to answer to that? Any rituals or anything? We have like five minutes. Oh. Does somebody have a question? We have like five minutes. Or did we answer all of them? Yeah, you answered the basket. Did somebody have a question? Hi, I'm Julie. I'm from Hi, Julie. I'm wondering sort of how you remember that you're a compulsive overeater and how you don't let your disease get away with telling you, you know, you've been abstinent so long, you know, you can go 
do what you know, normal people do. Oh my gosh, you know how abnormal it is to weigh and measure your food every day? <laughs> that is my reminder. That's my answer. Yeah, my head doesn't let me forget because it's never that your my food is static. It's never static and so I'm reminded. It's not once a week. My food is the reminder and then my insanity. Okay. Um, it's now time to close this workshop. Uh, after a moment of silence, could you please join me in the OA prayer? The book said OA prayer, so I think they probably mean I put my hand in yours. Oh, I'm thinking. OA prayer? Um, no. Thank you. Thank you, though. I really appreciate it. Don't you do? I'll do it. 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 I'll do